Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, Find out about special live events or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Hey, welcome, Mikkel and Tor from Stargate to And The Writer Is. I had some questions because you guys started this music program called LAMP, and I wanted to know more about it. Um, How is LAMP different from the other music programs? Well, Ross... As you know, music has been my passion since I was a kid. And I actually applied to music school but didn't get in. So we knew at LAMP we had to be very different from traditional education. We will see you and hear you purely based on your talent. Did anyone ever ask you about your GPA in a session? I think not. We actually teach you how music is done in the real world, like you're in the Stargate session. Amazing. If I wanted to be a part of it, how would I apply? Simply go to lampmusic.com. That's L-A-A-M-P music.com. We think a lot of the most interesting people in music don't necessarily have high school or college education, so we don't require any degrees. All you need to do is uh, send in your music, and uh, that's uh, how we decide who gets into the program. This is a a paid program, so what... You know, if I have to pay to be a part of it, what kind of value would I be getting as a student? You'll leave with an amazing number of songs in your catalog because the absolutely most valuable thing in the music business is the, are the actual songs. You'll also have studio time every single day and collaborate with other super talented people in the community. And since we're also bringing in top executives, publishers and managers, it's also a great place to connect and have your music heard by some pretty amazing people. What would a week look like at this program? So every Monday we have a new mentor coming in and they're talking about their most valuable lessons. Uh, Then we go to the studios and start writing on this week's assignment. Uh, And then the mentor will go from room to room and actually interact and work and and help write these songs and shape these ideas. Uh, And we deliver them on Friday. And every Monday we have a listening session, give feedback and the whole uh, process repeats. Who, who are some of the mentors? Some of the mentors we have so far are Justin Tranter, Neo, Circuit, Jossie, John Cunningham, Emily Warren, Charlie XX, and of course us, Stargate. So here's the real question. Can greatness be taught? Well, most of our students will already be pretty good. Uh, so we focus on the difference between good and great. And I think every single 
mentor that's in this program, they've done great stuff. So they know what that sounds like and feels like. And our mission is to help you take your music to the next level. How can I find more information on this? You go to our website, which is lampmusic.com with two A's, or our Instagram, which is also lampmusic. And uh, that's where you uh, send your music in and uh, apply. For those who don't know what LAMP stands for, what is it? Los Angeles Academy for Artists and Music Production. Awesome. awesome. Congratulations. And uh, I hope some of our listeners get to be participants. This is really cool, man. Congrats. Thank you so much, Ross. Thanks, Ross. Speak to you soon. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's Grammy ACM CMA AMA nominated singer-songwriter instrumentalist began her career far from the bright lights of Nashville. Of course, after completing a degree in psychology and having worked in labs at Stanford University, she'd cook up literally bangers. Like seriously, had a song on Miley Cyrus's album, Bangers. Anyway, she and her longtime collaborators crafted one of the best country albums of the last decade, including a genius record on par with classics like Jolene, the venerable song Burning House. Since then, she's released songs with all-stars like Sam Smith and Diplo, because this genreless artist has no boundaries. From Nashville, Tennessee, this multi-platinum certified mother recently released the follow-up to her self-titled album, and it, too, is an honest and vulnerable collection of bangers. And the writer is Cam. Wow. I sound so much cooler than me hiding in my messy bedroom right now. <laughs> you, don't, you don't think of yourself as cool? No. Not by a long... I mean, do you? Do I think of you as cool? No, of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've made a whole career out of being not cool. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to sink in. It's like, it's nice to have it told back. You're like, oh yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of, I think it means a lot of people feel the same way I do is what I like to think of it as. Yeah. It's, it's strange when you have aspirations and, um, you know, we, we talk a lot on this about you, you end up with a, a number one song or something and you get there and it's not like there's a parade waiting for you. It's a yeah. little different in Nashville where they might put up a billboard <laughs> and then a party for you. But for the most part, these things happen and, but they still happen to you and your friends and your family and the yeah. few people that, that you're close with. And they recognize it and then they go on with their life and it moves on. And I think everyone assumes that there's a there there. Yeah. A hundred percent. Or that like I had the thing that I always thought at some point I would get close enough to the there there and then the red carpet would come out and everyone would be like, Great, come on, like here's my hand and let's I you made it past the gates and there wasn't that either really, but it just I mean, I've been super fortunate. I'm glad uh that I didn't freak out when I was in some of those rooms with some of those other artists and pulled off some songs for them, like Miley and Sam and Diplo and stuff. And then, yeah, I'm really burning house really opened up doors for me once I switched to music, because it was like for mainstream country to have a song that was slow. A woman is singing it. There's no drums, you know, kind of a funky time signature for the verse like that 
that wasn't supposed to win commercially. And the fact that it did meant that now I just feel like, oh, I should just do me. And that, yeah. that should be the thing that I do. And that's a huge gift that not a lot of people get. Um, so this next record, the other side is like super me, like full of me, all doing, you know, pushing, you know, boundaries, but it's all in support of the songs and the messages in the songs. And yeah, really, really proud of what it sounds like. When you started your life, you were born on the West Coast in a place where country music is not really prevalent. It obviously Bakersfield, there's yeah. the Bakersfield sound. There's a lot of, it's not, that there are no country artists that have come out of California, but you know, born in Huntington and moving up to San Francisco, there's not a massive amount of country music in comparison to other genres. What was your childhood like? I grew up, my parents would play like, you know, oldies. I was obsessed with like oldies stations and like, you know, 50s, 60s. My grandparents listened to like 30s, 40s, like big band and like classic country. Um, And those voices and that songwriting really hit me. Like I knew how to hit replay on the Patsy Cline and the Ray Charles really early. And I was also in a children's choir that sang, by the time I got to Northern California, that sang in like 14 languages and was like, it early on kind of changed my ear and formed my ear for like, oh, like dissonant seconds in Bulgarian music and like just whatever that, it's just expressing emotions. Like everybody's kind of got the same, this is my psychology then coming in. Like everybody's got the same emotions. We're all feeling the same thing and wanting to sing about it and how you convey that, you know, harmonically or, you know, rhythmically or whatever kind of just depends on your style and where you're from. But uh, yeah, in San Francisco, like going to shows and stuff, I definitely was like the only artist. I didn't even know artists. The only artists that I saw on stage were like indie rock or folk. You know, that was kind of like the options. So I think like me starting songwriting, I was like, oh, you know, I love country songwriting, but it's sort of always had to be a little bit of a stretch. I think when I first started songwriting into, you know, like more Joni Mitchell and like that type of thing. And then I got like my first, I'm skipping a lot because there's a lot to the life. But (laughs) when I finally got like my first cut, I remember like an independent artist and it was like a really shit contract that was like worth nothing. But I was like, this is my big break and I'm going to do country music. And I remember looking at like what was on the charts and I was like, they don't have any women. They need me. And I like it. That's so naive. Like I really, I really thought they just had a shortage of women. (laughs) Kind of like saying they had a shortage of people of color. I don't know what it was. They just didn't have anybody. And it's like, once you get here, then you're like, Oh, that's what that is. But yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a conversation I can't wait to get to. But when you're in San Francisco and you're going to see folk and indie artists and whatnot, I assume this is, I I don't know what age you moved to San Francisco, but assuming it was before high school. Yeah, we moved up when I was five. So my like, Uh, I think my cultural bubble is the San Francisco Bay Area 
bubble, which is, you know, really specific um, and amazing. And I love it. And I'm so proud of it. And it doesn't necessarily translate everywhere else I go, (laughs) but I had a great time growing up there. And yeah, I, I didn't know anyone that did music. I think partially because it's so expensive to live there. Um, It's really hard for musicians to be there. And then when I first started playing, like, well, I first went to shows and like, I remember seeing like a band called bird monster. I was like obsessed with St. Vincent and like, it was like 2009 type stuff. And I remember thinking like, I could do that. Like, I think I could, I think I could be up there and do that. And this is high school or is this even this before is college that? and post-college? Cause I started acapella groups in high school and college and kind of, yeah, <laughs> super oh, nerd. <laughs> it was fun though. Like the harmony. No. <laughs> <laughs> what was your acapella group? Were you in one at Stanford or? I was in one at Davis. Yeah. Called, I started one called the spokes and they're still there. They had like a reunion that was like a lot of years since I've been in college. And it was so cool. They're at this huge concert hall and all these people were there. And that makes me so happy to think that something I created, I purposely thought about it lasting after I was going to leave. Like I really, that was what I really wanted it to be something that was going to live on. And the fact that it is, and like they all are still kind of blended in the same values. It almost feels like it's really cool. There are a lot of acapella. uh, we'll, We'll say nerds that became pretty successful in music what is it about acapella that makes good songwriters? Hmm. Well, I remember hearing Sarah Bareilles' demo. Like somebody, like the Underground College Network, somebody had handed somebody a burnt CD and she was in acapella and I was like, ooh, like I think that opened my mind that you could go that direction a little bit. But I think it just trains your ear because you have to arrange things for voices and you have to transcribe things, you know, into written stuff. So maybe it, singers kind of get a bad rap for being like uneducated, you know, cause you don't have to learn music to sing cause your instrument's just in you and natural. So maybe acapella people spend a little bit more time learning a little bit more traditional musicianship. I don't know. We were in rival acapella groups, me and Sarah, and we're the same age. No! She she obviously became really successful at that point, but I just remember (laughs) watching, you know, I think John Legend's the same year also, was also in a rival acapella group. It's like there was like a bunch of people where I saw them sort of taking off around the same time. They didn't start really, their careers didn't really start blowing up until like 2007 or 8. Yeah. Both of them which is well after all of us graduated. But you just knew some of the other acapella people who became successful and you're like, wow, you know, there's, there are other dorks who are figuring it yeah, out. Yeah, there should be like one big reunion of just like, <laughs> if you're... Everyone's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like, my... <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> My my wife and I joke about how there are so few sports sports sandos in, in pop music. <laughs> Your wife was in it too. No, no, no. We just but she was she was she studied voice for a year, so we have that in common. You know? I love that. But you go, um, 
you know, you're in, you're in an acapella group and, and people in, at UC Davis are not necessarily taking over the music industry, but you're choosing to have a degree in psychology, not in music, even though you're doing acapella stuff. Why, what were you going to be? I think, okay, so fourth grade, I wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. And then like high school, I started to realize like that was going to be a lot of work. And I talked for a project to an appellate court justice. And she basically told me, if you want to have kids, you're going to fall behind, like pretty straight gender talk. And then I was like, okay, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's not for me. So I, I think it's all this pursuit of really wanting to understand what is going on. Like, who am I? And what are other people feeling? And how does this all connect? Like, what is going on? And I, I think that truth thing is what then I fell into the psychology stuff. Like, oh, this looks like it'll give me more answers, you know? And psychology research, by the way, not like the doing helpful things for other people on a couch, like just full-blown, you know, doing tests and stuff. And it was really, um, I learned a lot. Like I did like attachment theory stuff. I, at, um, Davis, I worked at Berkeley at a lab for a while. And that was like cool relationship stuff, like 20 years of data of people in relationships, which is hilarious. I can remember watching these videos. You'd have like a couple and they'd have a negative and a positive and a neutral conversation. And then you'd code like whatever you were looking for, conflict resolution across this 20 years. And it was like the people that made it to the end of 20 years, like they had nothing left to argue about. They'd be like, what's the negative thing? Oh yeah. Like he doesn't do the dishes. I mean, what am I going to do? He doesn't, he's never done the dishes. He's never going to do. And then the people that like didn't make it, it was intense watching them argue, but like, yeah, kind of going into those. And then at Stanford, culture and emotion. So kind of, are you valuing your ideal affect? Like, are you trying to be excited all the time? Or are you trying to be peaceful all the time? And then how do you actually get there and the distance between how you feel and how you want to feel and what that predicts? Like all that stuff was really cool. I think it plays out in my songwriting in what I talk about. Um, But I hit this limit towards I think in any industry, you just start seeing the people that um, are kind of like messing with the data a little bit. And then how long it takes to get it approved, it gets edited. And it's only, you can only study what people with the money want you to study. Like, I mean, the music business is kind of messed up too, but it's just like, I think all businesses just run like that. So I was like, is this really truth? Is this what I want to do? And Saw a lot of fudging of data and stuff while you were doing I it? I saw people like cleaning up their data in ways that, um, not a lot of people, sorry. I, I can think of one guy cleaning up his data in a way that he shouldn't have cleaned it up. And I, as a young person, was like, you know, when you're younger, so you're like, wait, is this normal? Is this? And then I remember telling somebody about it and they're like, no, that's not normal. And I think he got like a wrist slap or whatever. But also just the whole system of it, even if you did have something true, and you boiled it down to this story that it takes you however long to get it approved and edited and printed. And then what is it once it's out just to the academic community? 
anyways, I had all these questions about it. There's good people doing research, but it just wasn't for me. And why do people in, in, in the music industry, it isn't that always different. I mean, how many people ask for songwriting credit on songs they didn't write? How many people ask for, you know, how many, you know, there's fudging of data. Oh yeah. clear, Clear ways when it comes to, mechanical royalties and streaming royalties and whatnot and who owns what. Um, why can't people just be honest? I would think it'd be easier because you wouldn't have so much stuff to keep straight. But I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people that are just trying so hard to be, to get some kind of power and hang on to it. Mm-hmm. And that's just like driving them. <laughs> like It's not even the money all the time. It's crazy. So no, I think money gets is really overrated when it comes to people's um, driving. Egos. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I think ego is much more uh, is much more of a driver than money. I think people think money is, but a lot of the people, especially the ones in power, don't need another dollar. So yeah. there's something else that's driving that. And that's um, something you see in the acapella world a lot. Huge <laughs> <laughs> egos. No. <laughs> but I do remember well, being upset at all the real rich schools that had so much money for recording budgets. But oh my god, we were one of those. And because <laughs> I went to USC, and the the oh. recordings were amazing. And yep. I was, yeah, it's a whole other conversation. But yeah, that that world's not totally dissimilar from you know the rest of the music industry where. Um, there are some schools where the acapella group's better funded and they can do better recordings and um, maybe they, they might recruit better singers mm-hmm. uh, because of it. But you'll always have some scrappy group somewhere that figures out how to do it. And when you, when you have, especially now when people know how to record better. Yeah. It's a that, whole new landscape. Yeah. It's different when, I think when I was in a group, there were a lot of acapella groups recording like acapella groups. And then there were about five that were recording the way Straight No Chaser and yeah. uh, and Pentatonics and those kinds of things were recording. Right? Like, oh, this is acapella-ish in a way. Yeah. yeah. So well super, know? yeah, it gets super picky with the track by track and stuff too. I feel like the, Yeah. I don't know where I was going to go. I was going to tell you something acapella related, but. Well, we can go back to that. But when you graduate and you're doing, you're doing research and you're studying how people think, I see some correlation, I guess, in lyric writing, but when are you having time to write songs and what is it that gets you from I'm writing songs to the next step? I, when I went abroad for like junior year of college, I boyf- I went to Italy for half the year and the Netherlands for the other half of the year. And a boyfriend had taught me like a couple chords on guitar. So I got a guitar over there and I was like real quiet about it, like in my room and like kind of would play just like for a couple friends type thing and started around then like writing songs, kind of like really poetic, unfinished type of songs. And then um, I sort of kept up with it. And I had another boyfriend that gave me like an interface that actually the guy that burning house is about, like he gave me like my first microphone, like a little um, 
duet, I want to say. It was like a double, yeah. 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 And then, uh, you know, Logic or whatever. And so I started like recording myself and all that was sort of happening college and post-college. So I was still kind of like doing things on my own. And then I remember kind of hitting this wall with psychology like not really knowing I had applied for graduate programs and I went on this interview at uh, Georgetown and it wasn't the right fit. So I didn't get in and I was about to do like another round of applications. And I was like, Oh, is this what I want to do? And my sister called me out super hard. We're like 18 months apart. And she's kind of like my soulmate twin. She was like, I don't know why you're spending so much time trying to figure out these other things working in your life. You have, this talent and you know what you should be doing. And I remember being so pissed. We were like walking a really long ways in San Francisco that day. And I was so pissed at her. I don't know why you get so pissed at people for telling you honest things, you know, it was just like, I was getting called out and I still went to my professor, uh, genie side at the lab in Stanford and was like, what do you think I should do? Like, why am I asking my professor this? I was like, what do you think I should do? Psychology. My sister says I should quit. And you're asking your professor that? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, (laughs) what do you think I should do? Psychology or or, uh, music? And she was like, picture yourself 80 years old. And what would you regret missing out on psychology or music? And I was like, it finally drove it home. Like, Yeah just what matters and how much time do you have and what do you feel like doing? And I just wasn't doing music that whole time because I was afraid I wasn't good. You know? Of course. Yeah. What gets your songs heard? Like anybody or me? You. Like what got my songs heard? I mean, there's a difference between, Hey, you're going to have to choose between psychology and and recording, you're not anywhere near Nashville or LA. Right. And somebody says you should do that. The first thing someone would probably say is you should try out for American Idol. So after you decide not to do that. That's right. Because that's the story. (laughs) How do you get heard? How did you get heard? What did you do? Yeah. I played in clubs. I started writing. I teamed up with this guy to help do like kind of like an initial indie set of songs and he ended up being such a, can you swear on the show? Yeah. yeah. He's such a dick and he like divorced my friend. It was such an asshole. So I hate talking about that project because I don't want anyone to go support that guy. But anyways, I started doing kind of like songs around town and, you know, playing like these little clubs. They're all gone now in Oakland and Berkeley. And the people that I grew up with were so supportive. I was shocked. I thought they'd be like, go get a job like the rest of us. And everybody was like, so down to show up and be like, yeah, you're great. I was like, what? How is this possible? And I, uh, another boyfriend of mine hooked me up with Tyler Johnson, who's been my like co-writer on everything, co-producer. He produces Harry Styles and Sam Smith and everybody. And he was working for Jeff Basker, who is like massive name. Kanye, Beyonce, Bruno Mars, like everything. And he, so he was like in it, like he had found his way into like a spot. And I started working with Ty. Like I had just been kind of like writing 
in my basement and sending stuff over. And we kind of just got to this point of like writing and writing. And I thought I was going to be a songwriter. Like I was saying that independent song that I got cut on someone's album I was like, Oh, I'll just be a songwriter. And the first contract I got offered as a songwriter because a demo. Oh, you know what it was? Our first thing was someone said they knew Faith Hill. And this is what happens in the beginning of all things after American Idol. Someone says they know someone famous and they don't know them. <laughs> and then one says they know Faith Hill. Yeah. Like, the one. It's uh it's not like there's it's always Faith Hill, it feels like. Yeah, like, right? Yeah. And so we did all these demos, like and this was like proper country music at this point. And where are you recording? Uh in Tyler's apartment. In in the Bay Area or this was in LA. This was in LA. Like when I was in the Bay Area, we would record things just yeah in houses and offices and rooms. And I actually took like a six month sabbatical, like enjoy my life, retire young in Portland. I kind of did some music like in the basement there. And then I was like, I'm not going to get anything done in music in Portland. Like no offense to the Portland scene, but like, you know, I could have stayed in the Bay Area for that kind of vibe. So I went down to LA and I had met Ty and we kind of started working together and we did these demos and they land, they ended up getting passed around to this independent girl. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is it. I'm going to make it as a songwriter. And the first publishing deal while I was moving to Nashville, because I was so sure that I was making it, you know, I was like leaving, hanging out with Ty and Jeff and everybody. Like I got out there and that deal was such crap. Like the first deal people offer you, because they know like shark wise, they can just take whatever you're worth, you know, first thing and like give you no money. And I almost signed it because everyone in this town was like, you can never get a pub deal. You got to go with it. It's such a big break. But like coming from California, I was like, this money is ridiculous. Like you can't even survive off this money. Like, how are you supposed to do this? So yeah, Yeah. I was like, no. And when I said that first, no, that's when it was like, you know what? I'm going to show people what I can do. And I'm going to go in, me, Ty, and Jeff is going to oversee this and like mentor us and get this out. Like we'll do a Kickstarter. We'll pay for it ourselves. We'll get it to like as far as we can go. Like 90% of the album was done. And like I told you, my whole, where I was from was so supportive. Everybody chipped in this money on this Kickstarter. And then I'll come back and then I'll do meetings with labels and they will see what I'm capable of. And it won't be like a guess, like, oh, maybe she could be this or we could straighten her hair and she could be like that, you know? So it worked. I went in and met with a bunch of people and Doug Morris, who's the head of, so he was the head of Sony, all Sony in New York. I went in and sat in his office we played burning house and he was like singing by the second chorus. And at the end he was like, you're not leaving here without signing a deal. And I was like, call my lawyer. (laughs) Just not falling for that, but it was great. I mean, that was, I don't think meetings normally go like that. So it was a lot of investment into myself early and having people that believed in me that invested in me too, like to get those songs heard, you know, in the right way. Yeah. And uh I think that there are a couple 
avenues you could have taken. There's no question that if you didn't know Jeff Basker, Ty, and you, you know, you, you didn't have that skill set, you hadn't already had a career beforehand, then sometimes that beginning publishing deal makes sense. If you have right. no connections and they're willing to put advance, like advance you money with no cuts really to speak of, kudos to them for raising, for, you know, trying to sign and break an artist. A hundred percent, except if you, but if you saw this contract, you would be like, no, don't do that. Right. I I don't question that. I just always wonder when, what you did so well is recognize that the relationships you already have were the ones that you couldn't get, even if you had a publishing deal, like you were working with talented people who understood you as a person before you ever had a deal. Right. I mean, I think that that's the genius of that move is to realize, oh, wait a minute. No, I have the thing. I just need the funding. Yeah. You know, that was the, that's a different situation. That seems to be a, you know, a uniquely savvy advice. What were, were you asking Tyler and Jeff for their advice on this deal or were you just sort of, were you constantly leading the charge? I think everybody was like, you shouldn't sign that. You should do your own thing. And I was the one who was like, no, I really want to consider it. And my lawyer, who's still my lawyer now, who um, I just met him, he's Kendrick Lamar's lawyer and like all these awesome people. He was like, do not sign that. That is horrible. And in Nashville, they kind of have like, a, it's a very different set of, you know, what you'll see in a contract looks different than what you'd see in LA or New York or Atlanta. So like it looked, it looked pretty bad anyways, but I was like, let me get a Nashville lawyer to look at it. Cause they'll know. And like that lawyer was like, sure, whatever. And like, I got to the very end, spent $1,500 that I didn't have on this lawyer to finally realize like, no, like, yeah, I do have a way forward that can end me up in a contract that is way better than this. Like I'm not forced into doing this. Like you're saying, like some people come to town, that's their only option. I do like have to say there are people in this town that know for a fact you are young. They're going to tell you, you don't need any kind of music business education. And they like it that way because you're from Kansas and what they're handing you looks like a lot to you. And it's, they know full well what they're doing when they're taking that percentage for that amount of money. And so those people can. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, I don't, I'm not here for that, but I understand what you're saying. There are some great people and I can think of them. If I had to go the other way, I can think of good people that I would have liked to be involved with that invested to like build. But I was really lucky that I wasn't scared enough to go along with that crap deal. I think transparency is really the gist of it is that even if it's not a lot of money, it may give you opportunities to grow and depend, you know, you should be in business with what's the expression of you'd rather have a, uh, uh, you'd rather have a bad deal with good people than a good deal with bad people. You know, it's like in the end, that's going to be, you're, those are the people you're going to grow with over time yeah. or people who can figure it out with you. But that yeah. said, um, you get cuts before your album 
you know, your big album comes out, you have cuts. You got a cut on a Miley Cyrus album. There are pop writers who dream of that kind of thing and don't get it. And there are certainly Nashville writers who would love to be on a pop album and spend tons of time in LA trying to get on pop albums and cannot do it. That must have been shocking to both you and your family, I would assume, and your friend. No? Yeah, shocking to my parents. I sent them to the Miley concert and my mom was joking that she didn't wear underwear because it was a Miley show. Like they had a great time. So they, I, I went in because Jeff was invited and Ty was invited and Jeff couldn't make it. So Ty brought me. So I wasn't like they were asking for me by name. No one knew who I was. So I went in and it was Mike Will and he was in there. We were in a studio like off sunset in LA and he was like showing us these beats and these tracks and Ty was kind of adding production. And I mean, you know, everybody's smoking. So I'm like trying to keep up with people that are like much larger than me. So I was like pretty gone by the end of the session. And Mike was like, yo, like check this out. And he plays this one track and it was like pretty much the production that you hear on maybe you're right. Like full, I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know? And he's like, you should write on it. And I was like, what now? You know, like I was, but at the same time I had no inhibitions either. So I was kind of like, okay. And I go into the vocal booth and I was like listening. And this is before, so bangers was when Miley did a full, you know, left turn. So I was like, are we doing the climb? Like, what is it we're writing here? And he was like, such great advice. And he was pretty young. Now looking back on that, like I, he was probably 24 or something like that. He was like, you should do you because that's the going to be the best thing that I can get from you. And I was like, okay. And I had just come through this breakup and they, I remember they like closed the curtains on the studio and I was like, whoa, I better do this fast because it's terrifying to be trapped in this box. And I was like listening and I was like, mm-hmm, and just came up with this chorus. It felt like years, but it was probably not that long. And I was like, okay, I think I have it. And they're like a melody. And I was like, no, I like the whole chorus. And that is exactly what you hear on that track. And Miley, like I come out of the booth um, and Mike goes, okay, you guys stay here. I'm going to go to the club. And I was like, is this how it works? Kind of what you're saying. Like, just do we do the work? And then Mike puts his name, you know, cause he's already done the track. I don't know. And he was actually going to the club to grab Miley. So he brings her back and she's got her like, you know, striped pants and platform. She's like, Oh my God, I love what you're doing. It's like right between pop and country. <laughs> it's just like, you know, still drooling kind of <laughs> it. She sang that song. I was so, I felt so good about that cut because she sang that song exactly how I was singing it and feeling it. And I don't know because she's an actress or just like, she's a musical family, but she is incredibly musical, like incredibly like, I don't know what that is, but I was really proud of how that came out. And yeah, that came out before, um, my stuff came out. So I felt, felt pretty cool. You had a couple years between that and your album coming out. Um, no matter how m- much your 
family is supportive of you and <laughs> Kickstarter is working, there has to be an element of what did you do leaving these psychology jobs? Yeah. You know, for 20% of a song on, you know, a mile. Oh, yeah. I won't, I won't even tell you what the percentage was. But, right, yeah. right. but I mean, that idea of like, it's not, you know, it's really hard to make a living as a songwriter. Yeah. And I held out on publishing, like same kind of vibe that we're talking about. I was like, no, I'm going to wait till I can get the deal. That's like the big deal. So I didn't have any coming in and which is a privilege, by the way, to say this out loud. Some people are like, I roughed it and you do rough it, but you rough it because you know, you're not about to fall through the cracks. You know what I mean? And like starting in the music business, you got to have some kind of a lot of people can do it because they have the buffer and you know, you could move back with parents or whatever. Like it is crazy, but like some people don't have that ability to risk everything like that. And just want to acknowledge that. Like I did have that ability. So it sucked. And I ate like butter and sriracha on rice for a while, you know, (laughs) and was on an air mattress. But, um, I remember calling my lawyer being like, Oh my God, I think I hit my limit. It was like, right before um, Burning House hadn't come out, but I think the first song had come out, My Mistake. And I was just like, and I did get an advance with when I finally got signed to the record deal too. But like that publishing one was the big one where I was just like, we got to give in. He's like, no, keep holding out. Cause then I got to sign that once I had Burning House, which was massive. And that was yeah. like, that was the move. That's a, what they tell you really early on is hold out on your publishing deal, hold out on your publishing deal. And again, I think that's that. I think you're right to identify. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The ability to hold out. But also what that does is, you know, what a publisher does is in theory, they help connect you, the artist, with Tyler and Jeff, the producer, and the co-writers. That's what their their job is along with, you know, but when you already have that, especially as the artist, you are the publisher. And that's right. why it's also often a co-publishing deal. It's not supposed to be necessarily that the publisher does everything. The artist is also supposed to be entrepreneurial, is yeah. also scrappy. You know, it's not like it should be done for you. And so I think in a way you were acting as your publisher and it was 
finding, you know, you were self-published. You weren't unpublished. Right. You were self-published. No, and that's what's so fun. We had like a, right while I was pregnant, there was, they have all these kind of like award, like the RIAA or NMPA or whatever. They had like an award thing for like multi-platinum songs. And I was pregnant, and so I was like, oh, I love this, taking up space while I'm pregnant. Because there's, like, it was me and one other woman at this event here in Nashville, and obviously, like, completely white. So I, I like showing up to those things to take up space, especially with the belly. But it's, um, yeah, I got to accept early on with Burning House and stuff, too, like, because in theory, my self-published company was a part of that song. You know, so, yeah, it was pretty fun. You're right self-publish first and then the big deal yeah whenever somebody says uh that they're unpublished i always remind them that they're Mm self-published because i think that there's an empowerment that songwriters should put in their back pocket um okay burning house that's a big song yeah that was the one i remember I had this, well, I had this boyfriend in college and we were like on again, off again, like big part of my life. And the last time I broke up with him, actually it wasn't even the last time to be honest, but at this point in my life, I had broken up with him. I was in Nepal and he was supposed to come meet me there. I was like volunteering, hanging out and I told him like the day he was supposed to fly out there that we were just going to be friends. And so it was kind of like this big shitty breakup and I was going to see him a couple, like a year or two later maybe. And I was just like, I got to apologize. This is so heavy on my mind that I was, you know, like such a dick and I not for him to like forgive me, but just so he knows that I know that that wasn't cool. And the night before I was going to see him, like I had all this going on inside me. So I dreamt about this house on fire and he's in it. And I run inside and they're all the emergency crews like, don't go in there. The house is about to come down. And I run in there and I see him, my ex, and I can't get him out. So instead of leaving and saving myself, I lay down next to him, put my arms around him so he doesn't have to die alone, like super heavy and the next morning woke up, be like, you guys, this is crazy, this dream. And I called Ty and he was like, had his guitar out and he started playing that riff. And I was telling him those words and he was singing back like, I had a dream about a burning house. Like, oh, this is insane. And we came up with these verses and we didn't know how to beat them with the chorus. And I remember we kind of had this little voice note was a little fire going on in the background. We had been together and we went in with Jeff and he was like, first off, I love this fire crackle. We got to have this in like the final recording. And he was like, Oh, I got an idea for a chorus, which is such a Jeff thing. His melodies are so like catchy, iconic. And he was like, sleep, walking, you know, like wandering all night, like so good. And I remember being honestly really embarrassed during that whole session. Cause as we're like pulling out words and tweaking, like everything that was like really embarrassing for me to say was making it in the song. <laughs> just like, I don't know why you just feel like everyone knows that 
exactly what you've been through. And it just felt really raw. And by the time we were done, I didn't think we were done. Like I was like, this doesn't feel like fully finished. And they both were like, no, this is definitely finished. Um, and then once I saw like people responding to the song, I was like, Oh no, maybe they're right. I kind of get it. And I remember those, the first shows until now, anytime I play that song, I can see it in people's eyes. Like they know exactly this. Maybe it's a different setup, but they have the same feeling. Like there's something you can't go back and fix, you know? And it's just like a heavy heaviness. And I am super grateful that, um, you know, Doug Morris had always loved that song from the first day he signed me. And I was on the Opry. We'd launched a different single. I was on the Opry and I sang that song as like the second song you get to sing at the Opry. And this really influential morning show DJ named Bobby Bones had me on the next day. He goes, what was that other song that you played? And he played a clip of Burning House and it like shot up the charts. Like his listeners all were like buying it and getting excited because it's out on like a little EP. And they were having like a change of the guard of the who's running Sony Nashville at that time. Cause I was always Sony New York and Sony Nashville. And so Julie, who had been kind of stepping in to help, who was really close with Doug, they were like, we're doing this. We're moving like Burning House is a single. They don't move that fast in country ever. So it kind of took someone from outside being in that position to say, no, we're going and we got this thing called like I Heart on the Verge, which is just where they super support with radio. And this song that everybody was like, well, yeah, we love this song, but like it can't possibly go anywhere being, you know, new female in a ballad and all that kind of stuff. And it just shot all the way up. And it was like so amazing and unreal. Like all these artists and fans telling me like, I remember where I was when I first heard it. Like, I remember Casey Musgrave telling me, she's like, it's really inspiring to think that like something different can win on the radio. And like, yeah, it just was like such a, a wild way to get introduced to everybody. But I mean, I'll never get sick of playing that song. So I'm really thankful that like, that's, that's the big thing that I get to live with, you know? You mentioned Casey, and she's obviously been another vocal artist about country radio and its inability to embrace women. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? On Casey? No, no, no. Oh, on just the, oh yeah. Um, you know, it's like the whole... Not trying to give radio a pass or anything, but it's definitely the whole industry that's like set up this way, which is really, I think from an outsider perspective, it's really hard to imagine, but like me in 2015 to 2020 still am told to my face, we have to come up with specific strategies to overcome the fact that you are a woman in this space. Like not, not an innuendo, like not like a, we'll talk around it, but like actually to my face and they're not being derogatory. They're not like jerks that are saying it. they are people that are like being pragmatic about what the status is. And it's 
like in the beginning, I kept being like really confused about that. And then there are definitely some backwards reasoning, obviously that's keeps supporting it. Um, there's a lot of people that just accept it. Like this is how it is. And this is just how it is in this space. And what are you going to do? Just find a way to keep moving forward. And then when you start asking questions, like people don't like that, obviously, and then come up with wild responses like, um, well, women are the majority listeners and really what they want is a guy singing to them so they can imagine it as their boyfriend. Like that is like why women listen to music. Like that was insane to hear to my face. They do the same thing in Latin music. I mean, really? yeah, those, both those genres use that exact same reasoning. It's really, it feels wild to be reduced like half the population, even if it is true for some people, which is whatever you want to argue, like to think that the entire music that is, that has existed in every single culture since the beginning of time, that is an integral part of society, that somehow like women it's, we're reduced that that is the only, it just is insane. It just is like insulting on a lot of levels. Um, but yeah, that's what you're, whatever right or wrong, that is what people are telling themselves. And it just keeps kind of, um, you know, and this thing too, like this isn't just about like white women, this applies to like why you don't see people of color, like beyond like a few token people like that, any effort to include people or give opportunities or make sure people are paid correctly um, is somehow like um, forced equity. You know, there's like free market guys show up all of a sudden like, right, you can't do that. And it's just like, this is ins- like the amount of mental gymnastics that people can do to somehow make themselves feel like that this is totally normal and totally okay. When like objectively, like it's even worse now than it was in the nineties and the seventies. And like, it was never great. Like we're always like around 30% maybe like white women. And now we're down to like 15 of radio, like getting played on the radio. That's better this year than it was two years ago um, or, th- or five years ago when burning house was big. You know, that was, that there were, I feel like there were no women that were getting played you know, there was a, a sprinkle of Miranda Lambert and, and of Carrie Underwood. And then, yeah. you know, and they would end up with, because of their four songs combined, that would be the 15%. It right. wasn't like yeah. 15% of songs recorded by women. Yeah, exactly. What are things that the industry could do to rectify that justification? What can... What you know, come to Jesus moment. Can the country, <laughs> can country music, or some of these other industries, you know, parts of genres? What can they do to actually make things fair? Um, I I have spent a lot of time in like diversity and inclusion committees, like for the Recording Academy. The same stuff comes out and for the ACMs and you see needles moving really slowly 
Cause there's, I mean, it's just practical. There's like lots of solutions you can think of, you know, that are like little things that can bring people in the door and have people meet important people and get funding. And like in any industry, like if you're in it you can, like you can see like if you're not committed to being, you know, fully head in the sand, there's definitely little things you can do. But I honestly think like, and people did think like switching technologies to streaming might even it out, but like ideas get transferred. Like technology doesn't like erase those ideas. So I think it's, um, I honestly think, especially the more I feel like I learn from black women in this space too, like you gotta like, you gotta like build something new. Like there's gotta be a whole rewrite because you're not, it's going to take too long for people in positions of power to like relearn if they can even relearn. Cause you see like, and I'm telling you this stuff right now, but like, they don't want to hear any of this stuff. Like, and that's the other thing is like any of the artists in this space, it's like career suicide to even discuss this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we, uh, my publishing company, we work a lot with she's the music and, the, the conversations that I think need to happen are men in the business need to recognize the disparity and then they need to make sure that women are in positions of, um, to me, I think they need to, there need to be more female A&R people on the record side. There need to be more executive producers that are women and there need to be more producers that are women because I think women in general just are, they don't care about bringing in a, a man into a session and they don't care about bringing in people of color into a session or people of a different gender. But left to a 5'10 white guy in an executive production position, they'll often find another 5'10 white guy yeah. to bring in. Yeah. And I, same, goes for, same goes for white women, I would argue. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's a and and again, I I think that there, I don't want to bring conflate all the issues, but I I think having an opportunity to, you know, the the artists, you know, making sure that they bring in people who yeah. are different, realizing you know, that you have that power that, to yeah, I, I who's coming in. And the, you need people in leadership, you need diverse leadership, and you need diverse membership. So any of these, like, recording academy and, you know, anybody that's, like, furthering careers or, you know, television moments that are helping people out or decision-making spaces, like, in Spotify or streaming or country radio, you need diverse people at the top. Like, if you have a show, you need diverse writers. If you have, like, and you need diverse membership because then when you go to vote, it's all like 65 plus percent is white men over 50 making yeah. decisions for who's getting honored in the highest regard in our industry. And then, yeah, in all these rooms, people like this mental break is like, just cause something exists like it is like people think power, like the assumption is that power and positions of power are justified and earned. Like people will all the time be like, well, if they were good enough, they would be in the room. If they were good enough, they would have broke through. And like that really has to get fully laid out in your mind that there is this 
specific set of barriers this entire way why those people are not in the room. And the few really exceptional people that don't look like you do, they have to be a hundred times better (laughs) than anybody else to be there. And like, so each of those things, yeah, everybody has to learn all of that. And while you're waiting for everybody to learn that careers are like in country music, careers have been crushed and livelihoods have been crushed. And we all have been deprived of incredible music because of these fallacies. And so why people right now are losing it. So like, do we keep waiting? Do we keep waiting on people to like figure it out? Because these guys in these power positions are not about to step aside. Like I've been in the rooms where people have openly told them what they needed to do and they don't do it. (laughs) So like, I appreciate she's the music. And I appreciate a lot of the women that are pushing for things, but they will, I mean, nobody wants to say like, everyone wants to be positive, right? Like it's happening. We're getting there. But you also need like this realistic, like. It's not, it's not happening. I don't think people are being unrealistic about the fact that it's not moving. Certainly at that air clip. I, I, I think the whole idea, I think they're, they're, one of the issues even after Black Lives Matter this year, after George Floyd, I should say, was that all the labels that promised to put women in power after the Me Too movement still haven't done that, even though they all signed the letter saying they would. Mm -hmm. So when they then go and say, well, no, we're going to add more diversity, why should we believe those labels who still haven't addressed the other other issue? And and maybe it's like... um, I know uh, maybe I don't know if it's appropriate for for sessions, labels or whatnot to be exactly what the demographics are in this country. But if hypothetically, certainly popular music, which is supposed to be the summation of all of the genres, maybe their their numbers should actually represent, you know, the the actual population of the country. Well, I don't think you have to get down to percentages. I think you have to, like, baby steps. You just got to let people in the room. Like, they're not even getting a shot. And, like, or even getting considered for a shot. Like, and that's where, like, the music business doesn't have, but diversify the stage. Never Famous, they're going to come with a job portal for, like, crew and touring musicians. So you have it. You're not just who knows who. You can see two-plus years experience. I can hire this guy. I don't have to guess and say like, well, this is a handout. No, he's like a talented gal or guy and I can hire him. Like the music industry is just like so much who you know. And um, yeah, sorry, I got off on the, I really wanted to mention them and I can't remember what the other thing you were saying was. Well, uh, just to go back for a minute, you go on this, um, you do get the red carpet treatment during burning house it is the moment of no you're not just somebody who aspires you're doing it mm-hmm. you're, you go and you have this moment of being a star really becomes that do you start realizing that you've made it uh i think tyler and i always talk about this like like success just doesn't like sink in. Like it doesn't become part of you, you know? And so it never, it never really, I think you just build your confidence in who you are 
And that seems to be a separate curve than I am successful and I have all these things. Like I don't go into a room and be like, let me list off all the stuff. And now I'm going to be good today in the writing room. It's like, you know, like I think either you, you feel good about your work and you've done enough practice and you feel like you got something to offer or you don't. And also age too. Like I think being older and being a mom now, like I'm, feel like being tired enough where you're just like, if it doesn't matter, I'm not spending my time on it because I'm so tired. Like, I think that kind of streamlines it for me too. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like also there's kind of like that thing too, right? Where you always feel like you haven't made it enough, you know? So like, there's always something else to want. So, which sucks because people who are, have, amazing things to be grateful for. Like don't get to enjoy it. So I try really hard to say what I'm grateful for. (laughs) So I don't fall into that. Between the release of that album and this new album, there's four and a half years, you know, it's, that's a whole college career. And a lot of things have happened in that time. Um, But it seems like there have been a lot of, there must've been, a lot of personal growth, a lot of things that have happened. Obviously, you now have a child. So things happen. It, the cuts you do have between the albums outside, you know, you you're, you start working with Sam Smith, you have Vince Gill, like the legend of legends, you know. Strangely, you get Train and Travi, you know, you have, you have Diplo, who does his country album, which were all, which was awesome. You know, you do a lot of stuff that's outside of being an artist, but here you finally have this album come out and it does so well. What, what took so long? I take a long time. I think cause the first album took like five years, you know, or whatever, just work on and get right. And so I think I like taking a long time anyways and tweaking And then when I thought it was ready and we put Diane out, um, then I had a difference in values with my Sony Nashville label and I left. So I took the project and had it. And I just, instead of just being Nashville in New York, I was just New York because Rob Stringer was like, okay, we can do this. And so then, which was amazing that has the other things happening this whole time. Cause I still was working and like touring internationally and having things come out and working with people, but it was, it was devastating at the time to have to feel like you were regrouping, you know? And, um, but then from that, I got to have moments where I added other songs to the record, like classic Jack Antonoff and, um, changes that I got to hear that Harry did with Ty and, you know, a couple um, songs that made this album super great. So in the end, it's that whole happen how it was supposed to happen. <laughs> but in the middle of it, I was really pissed, you know, and just, you know, heartbroken. And I think the last song on this album, Girl Like Me, is that's like the note from the author. After you hear all the songs, you hear the note from the author that is like, that day she came in and Natalie was like, I'm playing the song and this is like your, you know, your song, your comeback song. And I was just like, 
this is so sad and depressing, <laughs> you know, like this is me, you know? And she was like, what do you think about this chorus? And I was like, they're going to give up on you. You're going to give up on them. And just like this for me, I was lucky that it, you know, I guess it happened later in life, but, um, at some point you realize the world is not what you thought it was and people let you down and you just get heartbroken and that disillusionment, you can stay jaded and pissed about it, or you can sort of pick up the pieces and see that this is like a freedom to actually see things for how they are and see yourself for how you are and fully love the world and yourself for how they are. So, um, yeah, that time was, that was the journey, but I made it to the other side. Uh, yeah. Um, wait, do, <laughs> uh, do you feel the pressure to do things like, uh, you know, TikTok all the time and then your social media presence? Yes. Do you feel yes. I'll be really honest with you. I don't like it. I feel tons of pressure. I like don't have time between taking care of a baby and all that kind of stuff. And like, and even when you have people that are like helping and they're like, well, here we'll get kind of like a list of things that you want to post anyways. And like, you, and it's, it's just never as easy. It's like a lot of work. I know it sounds so lame to complain. Well, it about, makes you wonder what things were like in the sixties, you know, it's like they, yeah. they had to do a lot, but they weren't having to go like that. You know, they didn't have no, they were just partying and having a good time and making music. Like, Here's a um, random 60s question, and it's totally irrelevant, but your last name is Oaks. Are you related to Phil Oaks in any way? No. I, sh- I kind of want to start saying I am just for kicks, but no. People ask you that question all the time. I no. used to get asked that at the grocery store. No, I mean, not younger people normally, but older people will okay. know who Phil Oaks is. Um, but you, both you guys have good lyrics, so thought maybe it was cool. In this next segment... Because I know that one of your first things was opening for them. I asked our friend Dan Smyers from Dan and Shay, what would Dan ask Cam on And the Writer Is? You asked Dan this? Yeah, so he has a few questions for you. First one he I said, love Dan. Oh, yeah. I mean, how do you not? Yeah. Dan is one of like those, he's like both of you guys have this pop sensibility that allows you to write here being LA and and it's really hard for you know LA people to write Nashville it's hard for Nashville people to write in LA everybody thinks they can but not a lot of people do it successfully yeah. Dan is just like he gets it but and anyways, he is such a I just gotta say heart of gold and such a hard worker like everybody works hard but nobody outworks Dan I guarantee you nobody outworks that guy all right, well, he asked you four questions, okay. so I'm going to go through all of them. First one, can we go to Village Pub for a Guinness? Aww. So he said, or five. That's so sweet. Him, okay. I love him and his wife, Abby, and, like, we have our third dog because of her. And, like, yeah, we'll meet them down at Okay, cool. Village. I'll let him know that. Um, <laughs> Somehow I'm in the middle of this. Uh, number two, you've collaborated with some of the most successful yet credible artists in the world. How does your approach differ when you're working with someone like Sam Smith or Harry Styles versus working on your own project? Love that. I wish I was like a Swiss army knife that had different approaches. <laughs> but I, for better or for worse, 
just have mine and I'm, you know, normally very anxious about it. And for example, with Sam, when I went in for palace, Tyler said, okay, she's coming in. Tell her she's got to play guitar. She'll say she doesn't want to play guitar. Just say you want her to play guitar. So I come in and Sam was like, like oh, can you play guitar? And I was like, so embarrassed. Like, oh, you know, cause I kind of suck at guitar and I was just, you know, coming up with these chords, but it sounds so much like something that I would come up with because I'm the one on guitar. And it was such a beautiful song. I'm so proud of that for so many reasons. I, I'm obsessed with those lyrics and it went so well, but um, yeah, all that to say, I, I only have the one mode. So I don't know what else to do. I'm going in different order. Okay. Uh, before he said, you have possibly the most pure voice I've ever heard. Has singing always come naturally or was it learned through training? Part of it's natural. My dad's an incredible singer. I think I got this from him. This like singing really mid pitch. Your acapella-ness will appreciate. Like very kind of like in, you gotta be right in the middle. And then I was in that choir and in lessons to really help because the muscle, you know, like opera singers, they can become, you know, like a coloratura or whatever. Like you could train your instrument to go in whatever direction you want. So I definitely had to train it to get it to do the big moments and the small moments that I feel like finally on this record, the other side, I'm actually capable of doing like executing what's in my mind. Number three, which is goes back to what we were talking about. So I think it's important to end on this one. Um, I know I went one, two, four, three, but well, it is what it is. Um, you're such a voice for equality in music, and I admire that. As male artists in country music, what can we do? What can we be doing better to motivate change and inspire the future generation of our industry? I think you got to be just as vocal as the people who are saying there are no problems. There's no problems. Like you have to be, and especially this younger generation really appreciates that. And that's who you're speaking to. You're not speaking to the people who've already made up their minds. You're speaking to the people that are coming in that are going to have to face all this stuff. If we don't dismantle it for them, be so loud and so explicit about what you're saying because they're absorbing it. And it's really easy to think that you're being obnoxious. I think it all day long about myself, but they got to know. They got to know. Our last segment is going to be five for five. I'm going to list five things and just tell me, you know, what comes off the top of your head. Okay. We're going to start with, let's start. Cause I like that. She's the one who advised you, your sister. Yeah. Just a word or. Yeah, I don't know. There are no rules. Sure. A word, a sentence. She's my best friend, and we call each other Amelia and Abigail, those two geese that I think are from Aristocats or something like that. So she's just like my other half. Let's go with Tyler Johnson. Oh, he's my musical brother and he just, he's definitely like the engine. Like he just, 
keeps, I don't know what, I don't know how to describe Tyler. He just will, he's had a vision for what he wanted to do. And of course he doubted himself. Like we all doubted himself, but he just never stopped and like became great at things he wanted to become great at. And like got in these amazing rooms and people saw him for who he is. And yeah, just, I'm really proud of him. That sounds really cheesy to say. Jeff Basker. Uh, genius, mentor, like, I think that's the, he's just like such a unique character and like such a teacher. Um, and I think, the older I get, the more I fully understand all the things that he did for me. Your mother. Um, uh, imaginative, hilarious, um, worried, and like poetic. The people who donated to your crowdfunding effort those are, that's my community. Those are my roots. Those are my people that cared when nobody had to care. And yeah, I, I didn't think, I didn't even realize like what a community I had until they did that. Well, thank you for doing our podcast. Thank I, you. So nice talking to you. Yeah, you know, you have like uh, what I think Dan said and, you know, people who know and watch you see that you're vocal on behalf of this next generation. And I think that's all of our responsibility in all the cities and uh, to do that for for this next generation of music, because it's not just tearing down walls between genres, which you've done very well, or between genders, which you've done really well. It's, you know, it's, it's all of it. And it, it takes a lot of communication and then it takes a lot of transparency. You're obviously very smart and it's, it's important to have leaders like you in the business. So, you know, thank you. And, uh, you know, we'll have to write someday. Yeah, I'm in. That would be really fun. And we will put a sports sondo in it just, just for the (laughs) nod. (laughs) Cam, <laughs> like that. <laughs> I could, you know, I could do a whole version of Diane like that. Diane, yeah. yeah. You have that whole intro, which is so like. Now that I know your acapella background, that, it's like, of course, right? of course, that's your intro to that song. Like, that all has made to fun. fight me to take harmonies off of things. Basically, it's like I don't think we need all four. Cam, maybe we do. So. Do you need to stack them and then you need a doom? Yes. <laughs> so funny. Nice. Acapella Doris Unite. All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. 
And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 